0: Heavenly Father, I pray that you will give us a passion for your glory. And Lord, a commitment to live in such a way that our lives will speak well of you, that our lives will magnify you, cause others to think well. Lord, I pray that you will give us this passion as we read your word, as we learn it, as we seek to follow it, and as we commit ourselves in total dependence upon you in prayer. Make us people of your word and a praying people so that your glory would be put on display. This is our heart's prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good to see you this morning, and welcome to those of you who are watching by way of the web. We're continuing our study the life of Gideon. You know, there are some tests I remember taking in college that were easy, and some tests that were extremely hard for me. And with different people, it varies. For instance, I remember I had a class in college on baseball. <laughs> it wasn't one of your tougher courses. And baseball is one of the things I really enjoy. I grew up playing the game, and in fact, in 1968, I was involved in a league where we played a game called Stratomatic Baseball. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but that's long before fantasy baseball was even fantasized about. We would get together, and it was playing with statistics, and I knew the lineup of every major league team. I knew the batting average of every player. I knew how many home runs they hit, whether they were good defensively. I knew the pitching rotation of every team. I had all the facts down. I took a test in that baseball class in college and didn't study, passed it with flying colors. Then I had biology, and I didn't like biology, and I didn't study for the test, and I failed it, about as bad as you can fail a test. I wasn't sure I was even going to graduate or I'd have to take it again uh, it was such a disaster and and I've often thought you know in life it's kind of like that there are some tests that are easy for you because you're passionate about something you apply yourself you're knowledgeable about it you enjoy it uh, or you just rise up to the occasion and you you dig in and you pass the test and then there are other tests that are difficult And you give in. Some tests establish your faithfulness and others expose your failures. That's the way it is in life. And that's the way it was for Gideon. Let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges chapter 7 as we're going to look at three tests that Gideon faced. And we'll see whether he passed or failed. The very first test is the test of adversity. Chapter 7 really was the beginning of this test in many ways. Chapter 7 is the great battle of Gideon, where with 300 fierce men — actually, it wasn't so much the 300, it was the powerful God who caused the 300 to be victorious — with 300 men he withstood an army of 135,000 Midianites. And God gave them a great victory with lamps and empty vessels and yelling and trumpets. The Midianites, God caused chaos in their camp, and they fled. They began to travel back east, across the Jordan River, back to the land of Midian, where their home was, where they had come from. And the 300 Gideon's faithful 300 followed In hot pursuit this is where we pick up the story in verse 23 of chapter 7 it says the Israelites from Naphtali Asher and all Manasseh they were called out and they pursued the Midianites interesting these are some of the same people who came at the original call Gideon asked these tribes around the Jezreel Valley to come and fight and 32,000 showed up. But remember, God whittled down the army from 32,000 to 300, and these guys went home. Now they're reinforcements. They're fresh troops. They're being called out again. Help us in pursuing the enemy. And so they answer the call. Verse 24, Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim. Now Ephraim is one of the larger tribes in Israel, and they were not invited to the original battle but they're invited to the mopping-up operation. Gideon says, come down against the Midianites, seize the waters of the Jordan. And That means, in other words, put up a barricade so the Midianites can easily get across. And so all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they took the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth-barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, the raven and the wolf. The name Oreb means raven, and Zeb means wolf. But aren't those great names for military leaders? The raven and the wolf. And they catch these guys, and they kill them. And they bring their heads to Gideon, who is by the Jordan. So in this whole battle and the mopping up operation, Gideon is passing the test of adversity. When someone opposes you, do you stop Or do you keep going forward? In this test of adversity, Gideon also faced some criticism and some cowards. That's chapter 8. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. The Ephraimites, who were not invited originally to take part in the battle, they asked Gideon, Why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they criticized him sharply. You're just bringing us in after the deed is done. You know, I'm, I, we're coming in to fight the battle when the battle's already won. How come you didn't invite us? You have to understand that Ephraim, being one of the larger tribes, was also one of the most arrogant tribes, a tribe of prestige, but a, a tribe that, uh, you know, was loud and proud. And Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Ephraim. These are like sibling—it's uh, a sibling rivalry. These are brothers, maybe who didn't get along. And Gideon's from Manasseh, and they win the battle, and they're going to get the prestige. And Ephraim, frankly, is a little bit ticked that they weren't invited to the original battle. But I think maybe their biggest concern, probably the spoils of war, because if you don't fight the battle, you don't get the bounty. To the victors go the spoils. Now, later on, David is going to change that and say that those who stay back with the stuff are also going to be uh, victorious and prosperous as the soldiers are. But at this point in time, you had to fight to get any kind of reward. And Ephraim's not going to get anything. And there was a lot to be had from 135,000 Midianites. So how does Gideon... Respond to criti- criticism. Look at verse 2. He answered them, What have I accomplished compared with you guys? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of a beezer? my household? Is it your tribe so much better than mine? Verse 3. God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What, a, what was I able to do compared with you? And with this kind of flattery, their resentment was subdued. This is a beautiful illustration of the proverb in chapter 15, verse 1. A soft answer puts down wrath, turns away anger. If you want to keep a battle going, just answer someone harshly respond in kind, they criticized him sharply, verse 1 says. He could have criticized them sharply. You guys are always getting the press. You think you're big, you think you're powerful, you're always pushing your weight around. God chose me, not you. But he didn't. And a leader needs to know how to handle criticism because you're going to get it. If you're a leader, you will be criticized, no doubt about it. And so the Bible tells us that the way you handle criticism says a lot about your character. And Gideon shows that he is diplomatic. He's able to lead even the various tribes with their peculiarities and with their prejudice. He subdued their resentment. So he handles that part of adversity well. Now what about the cowards? Verse 4. Gideon and his 300 were now on the other side of the Jordan, and they were exhausted, keeping up pursuit of the Midianites. So they come to the little city of Sakoth among the tribe of Gad. Remember that when the 12 tribes were settled in the land of Israel, two and a half tribes were on the east side, and everyone else settled on the west side of the Jordan? So this is one of the cities from the tribe of Gad on the east side. Unfortunately, over the years, those east side tribes had become distant, not just in geography, but also in loyalty. Gideon says to them in verse 5, Give my troops some bread. We're worn out, and I'm still pursuing Ziba, the king of Midian, Zal-minuun. Zalmunua, And we're, we're doing our best to finish the battle. Give us some nourishment. The officials, verse 6, said, do you have the hands of the kings in your possession? Or the heads of the kings, which was often uh, the way to defeat an army. Why should we give bread to your troops if you haven't even finished the battle? Now that sounds prudent, because they're living on the east side. And if Israel doesn't totally defeat the Midianites, they'll come back and retaliate. And the first people they'll get will be the people on the east side. It sounds prudent. You're hedging your bets, right? But in reality, they're skeptical. And they're disloyal not only to their nation, but to the God who's already given them victory. Could they not see that the Midianites were fleeing? Could they not see that God had blessed by the hand of Gideon? They were cowards. One foot in the world and one foot in the church. (laughs) I want kind of both. I'm not going to commit. Let's see how this turns out. So say the people of Succoth. So Gideon says, just for that, when the Lord gives me these two kings, I'll tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. Wow. (laughs) Verse 8. They go just a little further to the city of Peniel and he makes the same request and the men of that city say the same thing. And Gideon says, when I triumph, I'll come back and tear down your tower, the tower that you take your safety in, the place of refuge. I'll tear it down. So verse 10 through 17, Gideon goes on, captures these two kings, beheads them, comes back shows these two cities. In fact, he first gets the names of all the officials in Succoth, then he comes back and says, you guys taunted me, verse 15. That's a word that means you insulted me, you mocked me, and showed no faith in Jehovah God. And Gideon punished them with, we're not exactly sure what it was, but some kind of thorn and briar and maybe whipping with, with a whip of thorns. In fact, one Bible commentator says for sure the 77 officials of the city were executed. We do know that the men in Peniel died because when the tower came down, apparently they were hiding in it. Many died. Rough times demand rough measures. Bible scholars are kind of divided. Was Gideon acting properly or not? That's a tough call. But after all, these were traitors in their ranks who were not trusting in Jehovah God, given opportunity and given evidence. So maybe this was the just judgment judgment of God. But there's one final thing that I want to mention under this heading of the test of adversity, and that's this whole idea of justice. After dealing with the national crisis, Gideon now goes to a personal, issue. This is verse 18. He asked the two kings, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Apparently this happened in one of the earlier raids when the Midianites came in, and the kings responded, they were men like you, with the bearing of a prince. Which, by the way, gives us some insight into the stature of Gideon. He must have been a great leader and must have been princely in character. Gideon said in verse 19, Those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. And as surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would have spared yours. Here's the humanity of Gideon. But of course, they didn't spare Gideon's brothers. They killed them unjustly. Now, this isn't vigilante justice. The difference is there was no law enforcement in that day, and Moses authorized families to go after individuals, criminals, who murdered part of their own clan. This was the path of justice. So Gideon now is rising up. Maybe he was afraid to do it before, but he's not afraid to do it now. He has them in his hands. They confess to the deed, we killed your brothers, they were just like you. And although Gideon's son, verse 20, would not slay the two kings, which, by the way, would have been a shame for kings to be killed by a boy, and also let us, lets us know that Gideon is a young man, a father in his 20s or 30s, Gideon does the deed and then begins to take the spoil, verse 21 says, the ornaments off the neck of the camels. These ornaments are crescent-shaped ornaments. Same ones described in Isaiah chapter 3, the same ones that many of the people of the Mideast east still use. I think he passed that test. Justice was meted out properly. I think he dealt with the criticism very well, and of course no one can criticize Gideon for the way he really won the battle trusting God. And in the middle, the way he dealt with the cowards, eh, Let's tip our hat to him and say he did pretty well there, too. Gideon knew how to stand in adversity. He passed the test. But there's a second test that's coming, and it's even more difficult. It's the test of authority or power. The opportunity to become famous or the opportunity to use the power with the fame. Verse 22, the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, your grandson, because you saved us out of the hand of Midian. By the way, uh, that is a common practice, is it not, to give generals political power once they've won great victories? Who was the first president of the United States? General George Washington, and he became president because of his leadership in battle. And then you've got president who was first General Grant, Eisenhower it's the practice of americans too to take well tested qualified military leaders and make them political governmental leaders gideon become our king i thought the first time that israel claimed they asked for a king was during the days of samuel and when they got king saul and the monarchy began oh no they wanted it now and from a practical standpoint it makes sense i mean They need someone that can galvanize these tribes that are living individually, someone to mobilize them into a cohesive unit, someone to coordinate their efforts for defense and for productivity. I mean, from a human standpoint, it makes sense. But Gideon refused the request to set up a dynasty. Verse 23, Gideon said, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you, because the Lord already rules over you. He's your king. You don't need another king. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 99, the Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. God is your king, Israel. And that's exactly what Samuel said to them, but they didn't listen. You have a king. Jehovah is your king. Listen to your king. He refuses to rule. That's wise to decline. I think their request, although it seemed practical, was sinful. And the response of Gideon is theological. It's, he understands who God is. He understands the theocracy. And it's not time to establish a monarchy. Moses said they're going to ask for a king, and now they do. And Gideon says no. Boy, he passed that test. By the way, when you call Jesus Lord, you're calling Jesus your king. Did you know that? Jesus is prophet. He speaks the word of God, and he is the word of God. He is priest. He is the only go-between between God and us. And he is king. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is meant to rule in your life. And yet we call him Lord and do not the things that he says. We call him Lord and apparently we don't know what it means. Hmm. Gideon responded well. He passed the test of authority, right? Or did he? <laughs> Looks good right now, but let's go to the next test. The third and final test is what we might call the test Of prosperity. You see, there are two requests. The first came from the people be our king. The second came from Gideon give me gold. Verse 24 I don't want to be your king, but you know, I do want the gold. I do have one request, Gideon said, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites, the Midianites, to wear gold earrings. They answered, We'd be glad to give them to you. I mean, you just delivered us from the hand of Midian. You can have anything you want. So they spread out a garment, and each man threw a ring from his plunder onto it. And the weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, which equals about 43 pounds. But that wasn't all. He got ornaments. This wasn't counting the ornaments that he took. Verse 21 Some of the ornaments from the camels, the crescent-shaped jewelry, or ornaments that the kings were wearing, the pendants, and the purple garments, garments that the kings were wearing, and the chains. He did pretty well for himself, didn't he? He might have started out poor, but he's no longer poor Gideon. He's a wealthy man. He's famous. And he gets all of these Did Gideon want to be king or not? He said he didn't. But sometimes we speak humility with the mouth when there's pride in the heart. Gideon says more by what he does than what he says. Your actions speak so loudly, I can't hear a word you're saying. I don't want to be king. Have you ever been asked... Uh, about something, or maybe offered something and you denied it, but you really wanted it, but you denied it so it looked like you are really humble, but in your heart you really wanted it? Right? Hey, would you like to have this? No, I don't want it. Boy, I hope they ask again. <laughs> hey, would you like to have this? No, no, you take it. Don't quit now. No, why don't you have it? Okay, I'll t- if you insist, I'll take it. And they wanted it all the time. Because although Gideon said he didn't want to be a king, he begins to live like a king. And his actions speak louder than his words. Verse 27. This is where the request of Gideon proves to be his undoing. This ruins him. He makes from the gold an ephod. And he places it in his hometown, Ophrah, and all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. What does that mean? This is spiritual prostitution. The Bible from the days of Moses and before pictures Israel like the wife of Jehovah, and we are to be faithful. And when we go after other gods, it's like committing spiritual adultery. And so this is another God that they're now beginning to worship. And not only did it hurt the whole nation, it became a snare to Gideon and his family, a trap. A snare is something that captures you and reduces you and controls you and ruins you. Now, the ephod could have been one of two things, maybe others, but two usually are are the, the two things that are thought of. An ephod is a linen Vest that was worn by the priest that had 12 stones on it representing each one of the tribes of Israel and also a couple stones called the Urim and the Thurim that were used to make decisions. Kind of like casting lots. The stones would be thrown and the way they would sound, the way they would land, what side was up, all of that helped the priest make decisions. It's like casting lots, which all of that has been dispensed with now that we have the Holy Spirit. Could it be that Gideon was saying, God spoke to me in the winepress, and God spoke to me with the fleece, and God spoke to me before the battle, and God used me in a mighty way? I'd just as soon have God continue to use me as the channel of his voice to his people. I'll just make an ephod. It was also used for divination, to discern what the gods want to do. Could it be that Gideon now has placed himself up as the voice of God? The other alternative is that the ephod was a little statue made of gold to represent Jehovah. But, of course, Jehovah said, don't make any idols like me. Remember that? Don't make any idols, no graven image of anything in heaven, on earth, under the earth. Don't make idols, and yet, Man's heart is an idol factory, Calvin said. We continue to make gods. Gideon was trying to make an idol of the true God. But the true God said, don't do it. You know, we can worship the true God in the wrong way. Or we can worship the true God in the right way with the wrong heart. God wants us worshiping him in the right way with the right heart and worshiping him alone. So this was idolatry that Gideon actually established, and the whole nation followed him. Psalm 106 says they worshiped their idols, which became a snare to their soul. And every idol that you and I have is going to ruin us as well, Gideon was used of God in a great way and then at the end fell. Triumph and now tragedy. We read the end of Gideon's life. It's rather interesting. Verse 28, Midian was subdued before the Israelites. They did not raise their head again during Gideon's lifetime, and the land enjoyed peace for 40 years. Yeah, peace from Midian, but not peace from idolatry. There was peace on the outside, turmoil on the inside. What about Gideon? Verse 29. Jerob another name for Gideon, son of Joash, went back home to live. He retired. But notice how he lived. He had 70 sons coming from his many wives. By the way, polygamy in the Bible always ends in trouble. But it was the way of kings to have a harem. Gideon's got the garments, and he's got the jewelry. He's got the ephod. He's got the harem. He's got the sons. And get this, verse 31. His concubine who lived in Shechem also bore him a son whom he named Abimelech. Gideon named his son Abimelech, which means my father is the king. You scoundrel. You said you didn't want to be king. Oh, he really did. And now he got what he wanted, and it was a disaster. Something good about Gideon, verse 32. When he died, he died in a good old age. That's only said of Abraham and David in the Scriptures. Buried in the tomb of his fathers. And he's even written about in Hebrews chapter 11 as a hero of faith. Good men can do horrible deeds. But notice verse 33. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites prostituted themselves again to the Baals. And now they're no better off than when Gideon found them back in chapter 6. No better off than when he destroyed the altar of his dad that was erected to Baal. They're right back where they started. And that's a tragedy. Paul says something very similar to this tragedy in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 7. You were running the race so well, he says. Who kept you back from following the truth? This influence does not come from the one who's calling you. This persuasion is not from God. You started well, you ran well, but you didn't finish well. Who hindered you? Who stopped you? What is stopping you? What God are you now loyal to that keeps you back from faithfully serving Jehovah? It's not how you start, it's how you finish the race. (laughs) That's what's important. A lot of people start well and don't finish well. So Gideon leaves a rather messy legacy, good and yet weak. This reminds us not to trust human leaders because they can let us down. It should cushion our despair when it happens and allow us to see that our real trust should only be in Jehovah. Our real trust, our eyes ought to be lifted up to Jesus Christ, who will never disappoint us. And he will never fail us. Gideon left a legacy that was a mixed bag. What kind of legacy are you going to leave? What will they write in your obituary? What will they etch on your tombstone? I came across this writing of a tombstone. I believe this is in England. I hope this wasn't the kids who didn't get the inheritance who wrote this about their dad. But this is what it says. Here lies a miser who lived for himself and cared for nothing but gathering wealth. Now where he is or how he fares, nobody knows and nobody cares. There's an epitaph for you. Gideon's was, you were running so well. What hindered you? And we're reminded that the battle is not won by the mighty and the proud, it's not won by the great in number, it's won by Jehovah himself. The battle is the Lord's. And I think the life of Gideon tells us not only about the frailty of our own humanness, the depravity of our own soul, it elevates the sovereignty, the power, the mercy and the love Of the God we serve. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know what kind of legacy many of us will be leaving, but I do know this morning that we have the tendency to pass certain tests and fail at others. Sometimes we rise to the occasion when things are difficult and then when things are good, we fail to praise you. Lord, I ask, that for each one of us here today, you would point our eyes back to Christ. May we be reminded that whenever there is a victory, it's by your grace and not by our power. Whenever there is an advance, it's because you were gracious, not because we were mighty or wise. And that, Lord, we need to take heed those of us who think we're standing lest we fall in the very next minute. But, Lord, we thank you and praise you because you are the one who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless and blameless before your throne with exceeding joy. And because of that, our eyes look upward to you, almighty Lord. Bless us, and then we will be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen.